podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it out of sight. So welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take. Myself, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin steering the ship as always. And today we are going for an episode that people have been asking us for for quite a long time. We'll get into Usyk against Chisora later in the week. We've got a a couple of episodes coming up for you later in the week. I'm not going to say what they'll be because I don't want to jinx them. One of them has been a little bit difficult to arrange uh, already. Uh, Nobody's fault, nobody's fault, but we'll hopefully get to the bottom of that over the course of the next few days. But for our regular Tuesday episode, which is what this one is, we're picking on something that, as I say, people have asked us for quite a few times over the course of the last 18 months, and that's to have a good chat about training, about training, about diet, about nutrition, about strength and conditioning, about making weight, about all of those things that are absolutely integral, of course, to being a professional fighter. And they're all things that inspire quite a lot of debate. They're things that have changed a lot, I would say, over the course of the last 20 years, particularly. The science has improved, people's thinking has improved, the number of people involved in a fighter's training has increased, I think it's fair to say. And we've got two people here who are ideally placed uh, to talk about it. I'm not one of them. Macklin is one of them because he started his pro career back in 2001. So his career absolutely encompassed that period where things did, I think it's fair to say, appreciably changed. And our guest today is exactly the same because he made his debut a couple of years before that. I saw both of these two box early doors in their careers, December 2001 at Wembley Conference Centre or Arena. I can't remember which one it was. Matt was 2-0 and and our other guest was 6-1. and It's uh, it's Mr Enzo Macaronelli, former WBA Cruiserweight champion, now the Johnny Lawrence of Swansea. WBO one, WBO. I said WBO, didn't I? WBA. Did I? Well, uh, humble apologies, humble apologies. Now the Johnny Lawrence of Swansea, as, uh, as I like to call him. Uh, he... He very much got me into Cobra Kai a few weeks ago, and I've been uh, I've been enjoying that, and I've been enjoying his motivational videos as well of a morning, encouraging people to get up and out and do some exercise just to just to kick off the day and uh, and keep them on a nice even keel. Um, got me out of the door this morning, actually. I did a, I mean, what could only really be described as a very mediocre ten k, but at least I did it, and that's the uh, that that's the message that that he put out, puts out there. So let's get into it and. As I said, it's it's a subject which incites quite a lot of debate now, the training aspect of being a professional fighter, what you need, who you need, what you should do. We'll start with you, Enzo. Just outline to us what you did in terms of training in that Calzaghi gym, because I think you could describe that as what people might call old school training now. Just describe to us what you did there and, and how maybe it all changed over the course of your career, because you still train very hard now. Yeah, I'm with, with Enzo. Um, it, it was 
it was sort of when you listen to a sports scientist now, when you tell about the rest and recovery, and you do this a certain day, do that a certain day. Um, Enzo had none of that. It was it was basically some days you'd only train once a day, but the training would last over three hours, and it it wasn't um, it wasn't like go easy for an hour, chill, go go hard for half hour, come back down. It was literally, what, what about uh, a, a training session with me, me and Joe, for example, me and Joe were sparring that day. There was a, there was a hill, uh, the Abadranis Hill uh, by Enzo's house. It was um, a 10K. Um, it was as close to a mountain as you can get. So we'd be, uh, we'd be shifting across there. We, you know, we'd have to get it within 40 minutes. Uh, we'd get back to the gym. Uh, me and Joe would do 12 rounds sparring. Then I would go on the bags for six rounds. He would go on the pads for six rounds. Then we'd swap over. Then it'd be some sort of exercise after. It, it was it was it was as basic as you could get, but but it worked. Um, you know, it worked. And I'm a big I'm a big believer in old school type of training. And and during the course of your career, did it? Did you see these changes that I referred to? Because what 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 I've seemed to notice as it was happening was was that fighters body shapes almost changed in that you didn't really see fighters ripped to a shred like you do now. I mean, Joe's a good a good example. Always in absolutely immaculate shape to fight. Completely fit to fight. But he didn't have an eight-pack, which seems to be obligatory for pretty much any any fighter now. Things did, things did change, didn't they? Did you feel the need to kind of try and adapt with that or, or not? Yeah, it, it did a little bit, and I think the main thing was me was the weight. Um, I was uh, I, I competed at the old cruiserweight limit, thirteen stone eight. Uh, then it jumped up to fourteen stone four, which, which you know was a massive jump. Um, I I never never many times come in over fourteen stone. Um, so I, I went to a course of doing a strongman training, battle ropes, kettlebells. Um, then I went up to Bolton with Carlins. Um, he took he brought a uh, an instructor, a, a professional fitness instructor on board. He had benching heavy, um, deadlifting heavy, squatting heavy. But he, he sort of took took my running out, um, put, put me on the strength, but took my long distance running out. It was it was all to do with um, when you when you feel that tiredness, when you feel that um, that point where you need to carry on. An example would be. Uh, I don't know if Mark, uh, Matthew has done the Shark Tank Spa where you have one boy in the middle and you have a boy in each corner. Um, so they keep swapping minute, 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 and you, you in the middle don't have no break. And because, because of my ability, I was able to get away with it for 25, 30 minutes without actually feeling, uh, feeling tired. But come 35 minutes, I was, I was basically on my ass. You know, it, it, it was a struggle. And those last five minutes to get to 40. I needed them last five minutes to just show me that I could push through anything because I literally had nothing left. But I needed that five minutes to get through. And this this fitness this fitness guy or PD instructor or strength conditioning coach, whatever you want to call it, he would stop that. He'd be more concerned in me recovering quicker and being ready for the next day. And um, uh, and that was for the Lebedev fight. And if if it was one fight I look back at, and I think I'd done everything wrong. Uh, it, w- it would have been that one. So, you know, I did change and I tried to put a lot of muscle on, trying to put a lot of bulk on just, just to get up to 14 stone four, which I, I don't think I've come close to many, on many occasions. Um, so 
I think it was more the weight factor that made me change my training, so to speak. But but one change that 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 did occur by the sound of it there was that you went from having a head trainer in Enzo who basically did everything. He did your boxing training uh, and he also took care of your fitness to having somebody who did your boxing training and somebody else who did your strength and conditioning. Yeah, yeah, it was. And it, it, was, it, was, it was sort of um, a diet plan was put into place and, you know, it, it was sort of structured in a way where a sports scientist would, uh, uh, how would I say, he, he took over the lead role. He took over. He took over when I done pads, when I done my sprints, when I done my weights. So it was sort of all structured and um, just didn't suit me at all. And you know, Carl, Carl's a great trainer on his own. I think he tried to go above and beyond what everyone else was doing. And you know, he he done the right. All he thought was the right things to get me where I was. Um, but for me, it, it just didn't work. Um, you know, it was it was the worst. For example, when I when I'm just about to go in the ring, I put my gloves on, I start punching walls. It's just, it's just my way of getting myself psyched up. They they had me stretching, calmed down, chilled out. Just didn't suit me in the slightest. So Matt, how did things how did things start out with you, and how did things maybe change over the course of your career with, with regard to who did what? Did it begin with a trainer who took care of everything, and then progress to being? Uh, a situation where there were more people involved in, in in different roles. So for me, it was it was a bit of a mad one, really. So you know, I was I was boxing for I'd won the senior NBA. I was boxing for England. I had my next few fights sort of pending. So we're in the summer holidays. Rob McCracken gave me a call, who I was very close with, who I'd looked up to, and who was kind of mentoring me really for the last year, all through the ABAs. Um, you know, when I was boxing abroad. I'd ring him and say, you know. I beat the Turk today. I've got a Russian tomorrow. And he, you know, we're talking through everything and he'd give me bits of pointers. Um, he called me up and said, look, he said, look, Mick, Mick's basically doing Mick Hennessy. That was his, his, his mate. We're doing a deal. Mick's doing a deal with Panos and the BBC. And, you know, basically he said, we've got Leo O'Reilly. We've got Dave Walker. We've got Lee Meager, but we, we're not going to go for these world champions. We're not looking to do that. We're trying to come with the BBC at that time. We've done the what the ABAs, they've done the four nations. They'd done the world championships in Belfast. They were quite into the amateur thing. So, you know, and me, so David Hay and Carl Frotch were two of the, were the two stars in Zin. They won the silver and the bronze medal in Belfast. And also myself and Matthew Thurwell, because of, say, the fashion that we'd won the ABAs in and the style. I didn't go to Belfast, could hurt me hands, but I was one of the kind of standout guys. So they wanted to sign me and Carl. Anyway, long story short, I was training at Paddy Lynch's gym. Um, and he intervened a bit and said, look, I don't think it's a good idea for you to turn pro. I think you should finish your law degree. I think you should go to the Commonwealth Games, do the Olympics, blah, blah, blah. You know, in 20, when you're 21, 22, you've got a degree behind you, you'll be mature. Then have a look. At, and by the way, if you are going to turn pro, Mick Hennessy isn't the man to go to. Uh, go with, you should go with uh, Frank Warren. So, obviously, Frank Warren was the man you used to see on the television every week with all the big name fighters, Ricky Hatton, you know, Nassim Hammer before that. And over the answer of the years, it was always Frank, you know. So um, I ended up being feeling like really torn and indecisive because I, first of all, I didn't even know I wanted to turn professional or wanted to stay amateur because my plan was to go to the Olympics. Then it was like, well, if I do turn pro, surely Frank Warren's the man. But then, but I wanted to be with Robert because I 
absolutely envisaged myself being with Robert as my trainer and manager. But then I just felt all over the place because I felt so decisive. I was here. Everyone was telling me different things. And uh, I remember just feeling a bit torn. And then I ended up saying, oh, you know what? I just, I'm just going to stay uh, amateur. And I, and I went down to Crystal Palace a couple of weeks later. Frank Warren had given me on the, you know, be on the phone a good few times. He'd up the ante with the offer. I had looked for a second meeting and that. And I remember going down to the squad at Crystal Palace and I just couldn't get going. And I thought, nah, fuck it, I'm going to turn pro. But then, the, the, but then obviously, you know, got, so in my head, I was always going to go with Rob McCracken, train and manage me. But now all of a sudden, it was Robert was with Mick and it was like a partnership thing. That obviously wasn't an option. So I'm like 19 years old. I've made my pro debut in eight weeks. Where the fuck am I going to train? And of course, I've just ended up going with, well, you know, I'm 19, I'm living at home. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll train at Paddy's. You know, I've won the ABAs basically training myself, you know, and I spied with Tony Maynard and Roy Rutherford and different pros in the gym. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I went that way, really. Now, Paddy Lynch and Tommy Lynch were very successful businessmen. They owned Linden Scaffold. It was a PLC. You know, boxing really was a hobby to them. And they weren't in the gym most of the time. They had a guy in there full time, but it, he opened the gym. He t- gloved me up when I'm sparring, but he wasn't a coach, you know, at all. So I, I never seen that situation being, I didn't never seen that to be the, you know, I wasn't going to be training this way forever. It was kind of like, it'll do for now. Um, but then I, what I was doing with that is, I was like, I was training, you know, but I was always like reading the boxing news, boxing monthly. And I was reading what everyone else was doing. Do you know what I mean? I was doing what other, reading what other fighters were doing. Like I was doing four rounders and I was running nine miles five mornings a week as fast as I could because Takaloo said he did it. You know what I mean? Like, talk about the blind leading the blind. First of all, Takaloo was probably telling lies, you know. <laughs> and, and even if he wasn't telling lies, it was, it was wrong, you know. So there's me. I'm doing a four-rounder and I'm running nine miles five mornings a week as fast as I can. You know, it's insanity, that is. Do you know what I mean? So I was constantly, even then, I knew I was reading Ricky Hatton was doing weight training. So I went and seen a guy in Birmingham who did a bit of weight training, but I didn't know it was the right weight training. The run. So this was how I was for a couple of years. But at the same time, I'm boxing. I boxed seven times in 10 months. In my first 10 months, and I was busy. So it hasn't, it's not like you've got time to sit back and think, am I doing the right thing here? I was just like going from next fight to next fight, reading what other people were doing, thinking, oh, that sounds good. And, you know, doing a bit of research in that sense. But I had no what real guidance or mentor. And like I say, Paddy and Tommy, and Don, even Don, in fairness, them used to say to me, slow down, you're doing too much. But I was so hungry and ambitious that I wanted, I wanted to do more, more, more. Not, where really, I just needed to do less. But no one could tell me that because, like I said, I didn't. It's not that they, these were good people, but I didn't trust that they were. I was, it was, I was eating, sleeping, breathing it. I was thinking about boxing morning, noon, and night. I was dreaming about it. Where this was a hobby to them. Do you know what I'm saying? So I didn't trust that they were maybe on it as much as they should have been. So I was then looking for, you know, I suppose I was looking, you know, the grass is greener, isn't it? I was looking over the fence, seeing what, what is everyone else doing? And you're copying the people that you're aspiring to be like, what does Ricky Hatton train like? What does Scott Harrison do? You know, this is what I was doing at the time. And mm. um, that went on for a couple of years. Obviously then I ended up, I lost Andrew Fraser. I ended up, signing, I ended up going with Billy Graham. Obviously, Billy um, had a certain way of training. And I think from a conditioning point of view, he was. I think he had it quite good, looking back. And not, 
necessarily the way I would do it, but it, but it was all, it was definitely not bad. He <clears> weren't you weren't overtrained with Billy. You had easy days and hard days. The hard days were hard, uh, but the easy days were easy. The, you know, it was all about punch, getting your punch, punch the leverages right, your balance right, getting the full leverage into the shots. G- give us give us an example of a hard day. So a hard day at that time would have been you know intensive rounds. So you jump the bar bar bag, you know, which is harder than a regular round on the bag. Um, or maybe the body belt, where he'd really kind of put the pace on you, you know, make you, you'd you be do a hard, uh, or sparring, you know, you were sparring that day. An easy day would be literally, you know, a bit of shadow boxing, maybe 15, 20 minutes in the ring with Billy, probably talking for at least half of that in between the shots. You know, there was no, there was nothing grueling on the Tuesday and Thursday. It was very much about technique, talking tactics and talking through game plans and things. It was as much talking as it was throwing shots. But you were getting your rest. You were letting the what you'd, you'd, you'd overloaded on the Monday, the Wednesday and the Friday. So on the Tuesday and Thursday, your body recovered and then you could go hard again on the Wednesday. And then Thursday would be the same. You go hard again on the Friday. And it was, it was very much a believer Saturday, Sunday. If your weight's good, don't train. You know, have the two days off. Usually I'd do a 30-minute run or so, a 40-minute run or something. But definitely with Billy, I never felt overtrained and I never felt not fit either. Do you know what I mean? So, but I mean, like I say, we go into technique and style, but we were talking from a conditioning point of view. He wasn't, um, I don't think he was too far off the mark. So Enzo, how about overtraining? That That's a word that, that you hear quite a lot now. You hear about fighters, uh, it's a word we've always heard, but you hear about fighters leaving it leaving it in the gym. And how, how were you on, on that front? I mean, you described the training and it does, it does sound hard, but w- when you were a young fighter, is there really a conversation you can have with your trainer along the lines of, I think you're working me too hard? I mean, I can't imagine you could ever have said that to Enzo. <laughs> wouldn't even enter my head to cross, cross him in that way. It was, uh, it, it was mad. And, um, and the Enzo, I don't think I ever overtrained and Looking back, it's it's madness that I didn't say, you know, I listen to Matthews here, have the weekend off, if you've done enough, have the, the hard day, an easy day, two hard days. We never had an easy day. It was just balls to the wall, 100 miles an hour. Um, I remember, I remember when I when I fought Dominguez, two days before, uh, we had steps inside the gym. Um, I had to go up and down the steps 50 times. Uh, I'd done 12 rounds on the pads. And then we had uh, a... Uh, Rugby pitch outside, I have to sprint the one end, come back, 10 burpees, 12 sets. This is two or three days before I fought Dominguez, my first world title fight. Um, and if you watch the fight, I struggled walking up the stairs. My legs, my legs were <laughs> in that much agony. Uh, but beforehand, I'd just done six rounds on the pads in the in the change room with Enzo, six proper rounds, not, not tippy-tapping. Um, and looking back, it, it is madness how I, how I didn't overtrain. Um, but it was like, he, he done something and it worked. Uh, I don't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that with my fighters at the moment. I train a couple of amateur boys, and you no, know, I, I do work them hard. But you know, I will keep an eye on them. And if they feel a bit down, if they're looking a bit lethargic, you know, I'll slow them down a, a, a touch. But with Enzo, it was never. It was just hundred mile an hour every day, something, something different. You know, I, I used to drive an hour up to Enzo's gym. I used to train. Two or three hours later, I'd have to drive home. I, I literally would struggle to drive home. 
Uh, you know, it was many times I've had to pull over in the lay-by just to, just to bring myself together before I, I carry on. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! You know, do you know what it is as well, though? And you, you get this with, with, with boxing and any sport, I suppose. You'll see someone that's tough. And I, I did, like I said, I was looking over what, what do they do, what do other people do? You know, sometimes mm. someone might be achieving massively in spite of doing things mm. wrong, not because of. Do you understand? And the argument there would be, well, if they did it this way, they would have been even better. No, do you know what I mean? It's not. It's not necessarily just because they did it a certain way doesn't mean that's the right way. Maybe they were just super talented, or maybe they just had an you know unbelievable grit, or maybe they just had a massive bang on them and they could get themselves out of jail. You know, there's there's different things. Someone people can achieve, but if you look back, like I know there were fights I won and or whatever things I achieved, and look back at the way I got there. And it was completely wrong. I would I would never do that again now or advise anyone to do it, but I still won. So it wasn't because of the training I did. It was in spite of the training sometimes. So so where would you where, it's interesting to hear you both say that because that was that was exactly what I was going to ask as to whether you think that the way you went about it in your early days, Enzo, which which obviously produced results for yourself, for Joe, and for everybody else in that gym. If you could do it all over again, would you do it that way? Would you do it a more modern way? Would it be a mixture of the two things? Because at the moment, you look at a fighter, a fighter with reputation who turns over, let's just say an Olympian, they're definitely going to have a boxing trainer, but probably also a strength and conditioner and a nutritionist and maybe even some kind of mental performance coach. And sometimes people will point at that, particularly if they dare lose and say, oh, it's too many people, too many voices. What, what is the right mix, do you think? Uh, again, again, like you said, it, it is a mixture. You know, look, looking back now, I think uh, I wouldn't change a lot because it worked for me, like Matt said. It works for some, it won't work for others. I would probably put in uh, a couple of easy days here and there, um, you know, just chill down a, a little bit in some days. And, you know, I think I'd bring, bring my levels back up. On those off days, I'd recover, bring my levels back up. Um, I would definitely improve my nutrition um, during them days because I was so light for the weight. It, it was all about pastas, potatoes, pastas, potatoes, all I was trying to pump in because I trained so hard. I was so, so light on the weight. Um, you know, I regularly coming in 10 pounds under the weight limit. And, you know, looking back, I, I would sort my nutrition a little bit. I'd have the odd rest day again. But again, like Matthew said, every, everyone is different. Everyone. Certain things suit me, wouldn't suit Matt. Certain things suit Matt, wouldn't have suited me. Every fight is different. And I think as a coach uh, in this day and age, you have to know your fighter. You have to know what they're good at, how they react to things. Um, you know, I got, I got a couple of boys 
in the gym, you know, and if I, if I shout and scream at them, they, they sort of pump their hands together and they go to that next level. I got another boy then, uh, I won't mention his name and embarrass him on, on you, but he, he shouted at me, he chucked his dummy out the pram and, you know, it's all about a trainer knowing his fight that. So, you know, looking back, I would tweak a little certain things. I wouldn't change it completely, but I would tweak a few things. So how about how about conditions then? Because when I say conditions, I'm talking about the idea that boxing is obviously a very very hard sport. Um, it's always been a a a working class sport. You have to condition yourself to to pain, to hardship. There's there's no getting around that because if you go into pro boxing, that is going to happen. You're going to find yourself in a world of hurt at some point where it will come down really to how much you want it whether you can survive those moments when you really feel like quitting. So old school things like getting up in the middle of the night in the driving rain to go for a run, is that what that is about? Is that is that about mindset? Because there's no reason why running at half past four in the morning is going to get you any fitter than running at six o'clock in the evening. It's, it's just about a matter of getting your body used to something. You know, It, it doesn't matter whether me, I was a morning, I my as I adapted over the years, I used to get up at five o'clock in the morning, I'd go for a run at six. Uh, I'd come back, I'd have my breakfast, I'd chill out for an hour or two. I'd be in the gym by half 11, 12. I'd do another full-on hard session. But then I'd have all that time to recover. So even even throughout my career, I sort of tweaked a few things which which helped me quite a bit. Uh, it's, it's it's a matter of, of taste, it's a matter of opinion, it's a matter of what, what suits you. Like... Like I said, one word for me, getting up in the morning, I see the lock out the window, I see it belting down the rain. Um, for me then, to go out there, just a, just a mindset then of nothing, nothing's going to hold me back, nothing's going to stop me, um, and, and get out there. So it, it's just a matter of taste, it's a matter of opinion, it's a matter of uh, how much you want it as well. Do you know, do you know what it is as well? And it, just going a little bit back, I suppose, and I'm not going to go back too much, but I just want to keep moving, but when you said about, like, you know, you don't, the run, and then you come in, you do 12 rounds sparring, and you do 12 rounds on the pads. You know, I mean, you could say there that, well, how, you, you I know the the, F, the the work ethic and the effort that's going in is 100% flat out, but is the output really that quality? Because if you're tired, it can't possibly be as good. It's like the easy days, recovering from, the, if you go, if you train really hard on Monday, look where you push the limit and you've, you go past the pain barriers, you, you won't be able to do it again the next day, not to the same quality, where if you rest and your body recovers and then it gets fitter and then you push again, you'll be more efficient and you'll be fresher. It's like, for example, let's say we had a, let's say we did the bench um, bench press and we did 10 reps, right? And we did 10 reps the next day and 10 reps the next day. Eventually, the, the, you know, or whatever, or, or, you know, whatever, however way you do it, eventually the muscles are going to get tired. Now, you may, as, as I'm sure you would, Enzo, and I would have, we're going to keep gritting another set of 10 out and we're going to keep gritting another 10 out because we're boxers and we're lunatics and we're super determined and we don't give in to pain. But the bar is going to start moving slower <clears throat> and slower and slower. We might get the volume out because we're gritting the volume out. We will not let it beat us, but the bar will start moving more slower and that's the that that moving faster or slower would so you know that could be the difference between slipping a shot, moving a shot. The velocity at which the bar moves is if the muscles are tired, all the will in the world 
isn't going to move it fast. I'm not saying we won't do the same volume because we're gritting it out, but we're not going to do it as good, as fast, as sharp. It's like over a 12 rounds. We might grit 12 rounds out, but the quality might diminish because we're tired. And the, when the muscles get fresh, you're not as sharp, you're not as quick, you don't react as fast. And that's what performance is about. It's like the 100 metres. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're tired, you won't move as quickly as someone that is fresh. So rest is as important as the volume and the grits and the breaking the pain barriers because if the muscle isn't fresh, it will not move as fast. You can, you can will it all you want in the world and you can, you'll get there and you might do the same volume, but you won't, if the muscle isn't uh, recovered properly, it won't move as quick. And that's, that's what performance is all about. 100% agree with you. You know, that, that's what I said. You know, if, I, if I could tweak a few things, it would be the, the odd rest day here, the odd rest day there. Um, you know, I like some of my fighters and we, we train hard in my gym, but, you know, I notice on the end of the week and then I'll pull one to one side, I'll give him something different. Uh, and like you said, it's all about recovery. And um, I was always, a, as, as a youngster, I was always like, you know, if I got up in the morning, I... I basically couldn't get out of bed. I was in agony and I, I locked with the window and I seen that rain. Um, I'd still go. And, you know, looking back now, that, that day off of just laying in that bed that extra hour uh, and going for a walk instead of a run, you know, that would have benefited me massively. So it's it's all, as you know, South Mark, it's, it's all learning. It's all it's all the experience, um, how how you did things, how you do things, what you could have done better. And, and all the examples you give there, uh, we're perfect, you know, it's, it's going to come a point where at the end of the week we're doing the same thing over and over again with the same intensity over and over again. The technique's going to falter a little bit, the, the the output is going to falter a little bit and, you know, your running times are going to falter, your punch output's going to falter, your, your power, your speed, your explosive, everything is going to falter. So looking back, uh, like I said, those little tweaks I would have made would have been diet uh, and definitely couple of days off here or there or not even a day off just just sometimes like, less is more sometimes do you know what I mean you know, I, 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 you know I've learned I've learned that over the years um you know I even even though at the age of 40 I'm still working myself to the bone and uh I always had that that self-motivation that I think is about seven or eight fights title fights I had where I literally trained myself and when I say train myself I mean stopwatch on the floor uh it in a bag going away for a bit of sparring, um, coming back, no trainer, nothing. So, you know, the, the motivation was there. So it would have been nice to have someone doing them times, lock ends, calm it down today. Like when I went with Gary, um, you know, Gary Gary didn't change too much about me, uh, but he did He did start bringing in the odd easy day there, here and there for me, the rest day. Uh, like you said, on, a, on the pads one day would be the body bag, which was... The worst thing in the world for me it was like I'm used to hitting someone and then falling over, you know, with that body bag just keeps coming at you and keeps coming at it. The next day, then there'd be ten rooms on a pads, but after time you're talking, um, have a have a little sweat on. So, you know, I think the rest side of things, uh, not not everyone gets it right. Uh, and that's that's a main thing they should be working on, especially these youngsters coming through. Yeah, if you don't rest, you just get jaded. You don't get fit. You know, if you don't let that... When you overload, you break, a, you break a pain barrier. But if you don't let it rest and the recovery happen for the fitness, for your body to adapt and get fitter, 
and you just keep grinding and grinding. Eventually, you, you just get jaded or you get injured. Your body says, fuck off, leave me alone. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it was more, rather than the overtraining, it was the injuries to me. Um, you know, it's the amount of times I went to a fight, like, like all fighters do, so I'm not making excuses, but the amount of times I've gone into a fight where I have no business being in a ring. And it's not, it's not from me feeling overtrained. It's just like you said, you've overloaded the muscles, you push yourself to the limit. And it comes, it comes a point there and then when little niggles start to happen, those little niggles, you try to run through them, you try to push through them, and then little niggles get into big niggles. And then it's just the mental aspect then of going in that ring, knowing for well, you haven't done the runs properly, you haven't done even though you've tried, you haven't done the boxing properly, you haven't done the runs properly. Um, so, yeah, rest is massive. And, you know, I try to tell all my young fighters, and uh, I, I even done a few things on Twitter where it was aimed at the young fighters coming through, and I think the, the object was less is more. Well, we'll, ret- we'll return to rest as a subject in, in just a minute because there's one thing in particular that really interests me about that, which we haven't quite touched on. But before I forget... Where do you both stand on the hard sparring debate? Because there are differing opinions on this. You look at the Ingle Gym, for example, they do body sparring, although I know that they will throw them in with some amateurs or even with some, some white-collar fighters who will then be told that their aim is to try and you know take, take their head off and they've got to avoid that. So they will have people coming at them. But at the Ingle Gym, they will generally, with the pros anyway, they won't do head sparring because they believe that it puts too many miles on the clock that you're going to have hard fights. And, and why do that? Why take that out of yourself in the gym? Tundia Jay has become well-known in boxing circles the last two or three years, basically for his his belief as well, that the head sparring, the hard sparring is, is counterproductive. So you first, Enzo, sparring. How, how important is it? How much of it do you need to do? Sparring is good. Sparring is good for timing. It's, it's good for the, the distance, of gauging the distance. Um, I, I changed over the years. This is one of the big things I changed over the years. Um, obviously, I'm very heavy-handed. Uh, and when I was younger, I was sparring boys and I was just blowing them away. And it, it was literally, um, I, I won't mention no names, but I went to a few places. Uh, I went to one in particular uh, I sparred a, a very well-known, high-level heavyweight. I had to drive five hours to go there. We went at it for a round, really flat out. I cracked him with a body shot. And he went down. That was my sparring over. I, I had a title fight coming up, and in that camp, I done one round of sparring, just just for me being so heavy-handed and trying uh, and trying. I I found I was better, um, and I was sparring like the boys. Uh, as they went on, I sparring like the boys. I tried to keep up the pace. I tried to keep up the boxing ability, uh, and that's when I found I was a little bit better. I do believe it. In the, you need a hard spar now and again. Um, you know, just get accustomed to what it's like being in the ring um, all the time. No, but, but like I said, for me, when I started changing, especially when I went to the Gary's, um, you know, he basically said, "End if you spar like you fight." We're not going to get no sparring, and you know I sort of adapted and I've changed, uh, and I I've done that ever since. I've done twenty rounds with the boxers from my gym the other day, all weights, all levels. Uh, I, I didn't hurt any of them hard, and I probably got more out of that than half the spars I ever had. Matt, Matt, where are you on this? Because you've obviously you you split your career. You're in the UK. You're in the USA as well. 
Uh, so you saw the you know the different schools of sparring in 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 those two countries. What are your thoughts? Do you need to spar hard and put a lot of hard rounds in in preparation for a fight, or does it change over the course of a career? Does it does it change depending on who you're fighting? I think it, it it completely depends on all of those things. It depends on who you are, what your style is, what your mentality is. Um, you know, for example, if if it's someone like um, Frankie Gavin who doesn't get hit, I'd I'd spar Frankie Gavin twelve rounds many times before a fight and bring in different sparring partners because he's got that footwork. He's the south, he's got a speed, and he doesn't get hit much. So I'd spar Frank. I'd, Frankie's better off sparring twelve rounds than doing six and the pads and the body, but I just do, I just spar him. I'd spar him all the time. Not every day, but you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I'd spar up to 12 rounds. Someone like Ricky Hatton never sparred more than six because Ricky Hatton sparred hard. He sparred intense. He was short, stocky. He, he'd slip and slide and get into shots. And of course, when he's a, a little bit heavier and he's not quite as sharp, you get hit with a lot of shots. So, you know, if it was, if, if Ricky, Ricky Hatton sparred for about, done about six sessions, and they were usually like a couple of fours and then maybe three or four sixes. And that's what he sparred. And he, then he, but Billy would take the rounds up to 12 intensive rounds with the body belt. So Ricky would do six rounds sparring, get the head guard and the 16 ounce gloves on, bang on the 10 ounce gloves. So you're talking probably a couple of minutes for that to happen. Then he'd do six hard rounds on the body belt. And when Ricky Hatton was in his peak, there weren't many fighters on this planet that could do 12 rounds at a better pace than him. So it worked for him. Do you know what I mean? But like someone like Frankie Gavin, who doesn't get heat in sparring, I'd spar all day long because why mm. not? Get get your eye in, get your distance, get sharp. You're getting your conditioning. He's getting fit over the, you know, specifically fit for fighting, fighting fit boxing, 12 rounds. He's not getting, there is no miles on the clock for Frankie Gavin in sparring, just like there wasn't for Manny Pacquiao in the wild card when I watched him sparring. But someone like me, someone like Ricky Hatton, who, you know, get hit a bit, take one to give one sometimes. I don't think over-sparring too much of hard sparring is too good, but I'm, I'm also the type of person that if I sparred guys too much below me, I couldn't really get up for the spar, and then I was shy anyway. Then I wasn't sharp. <laughs> a bit like, you know, like Ricky. Ricky needed that bit of fear. He was flipping, sliding. So he needed to be sparring hard enough, intense enough, someone good enough, that kept him on his toes, that made him slip and slide and react and be sharp. But you couldn't do too much of that because if there was too much of that sparring, it wouldn't have been, there wouldn't have been a fight. He'd have left it in the gym. You know, you talk about fighters leaving it in the gym. If you if you if you have too much wars in the gym, then you've you've left it there. You talk, you hear about the great Philly fighters that never really made it as pro- like Ivan Robinson. You know, I heard he was one of the best amateurs you've ever seen in your life. But the amount of wars he had in the gym in Philadelphia was unbelievable. Magic Taylor, all these guys, they were having ding-dongs three times a week in the gym. You know what I mean? There's only so much. It's miles on the clock. You drive a car. You drive a Ferrari. If there's 100,000 miles on it, it's, it's going to pack up. Do you know what I mean? And sparring, it's there's not one set rule. So... Back to, to Ricky Hatton needed the intensity. I needed intensity. You know, I needed it to make me sharp. So I had to have a couple of hard spars. But I couldn't. That couldn't be for too long. Or you'd be too. You'd have left the fight in the gym. You you wouldn't have took it into the fight. But again, someone like Frankie Gavin, Manny Pacquiao, who've got that footwork and have got that speed, who don't get hit, 
I'd spar them all day long. And Enzo, is, is it important when you're a young pro to take those tough sparring jobs against more established senior fighters? You know you get the call when you're early in your career to be the sparring partner and you know it's going to be some some heavy work probably. Did you take jobs like that? Is it important to take those jobs when you're young? I, I, I did take a few jobs like that. I, I was, it was supposed to be heavy work for me, but I think uh, people underestimated me at a young age of not knowing who I was and how I could bang. Um, and it, it, it's just, I'll tell you an example of why I don't like certain people going in. I went to, um, I went to Germany uh, as far as uh, Robin Krasnicki. Um, travel, travel nine hours, travel nine hours a day. Maybe spa. As soon as I got there, um, he come at me straight away. I and I and I and slept properly and ate properly. Cut a long story short, it didn't go too well for him. Uh, he pulled out after a couple of rounds. Um, next day I went, and it was it was a kid. Uh, it was a kid in my hotel. I can't remember his name. He's a, a Algerian boy, uh, and. I said, who are you at the spa? And he said, he's, he's here at the spa, Robert Stieglitz. Uh, so he, he's, I think he was 2-0 and at the time, and he's finding this Robert Stieglitz. And Robert Stieglitz was about to fight, um, I think it could have been Abraham, um, for the, the third time. And I'd I done his corner. I went down to the gym, because uh, President did didn't want to spar me that day, so I went to the gym anyway to watch the kid, the corner of the kid. Um, and... I watched Robert Stieglitz absolutely smash this young kid. Um, he absolutely hammered him. I think he was on £1,000 a week uh, for four rounds. He absolutely hammered this young kid. Uh, and for me, that done the kid. That done nothing Robert Stieglitz either. Uh, you know, this, this kid has done nothing. I remember I remember saying to the coach, I said, why are you, why are you hitting him that hard? Why is he? He said, oh, we, we, pay, him, we pay him money. I said, oh, I'll, I'll spar him. I was a light heavyweight at the time. I said, I'll spar him. He said, no, no, we pay him. We pay him. I said, I'll, I'll spar you for nothing. You know, if they'd have let me back in that ring with Robert Stieglitz that day, he'd have had that same back room. Um, it, it's some some fighters just absolutely take the piss. Uh, and I, I really felt sorry for this young kid. It is good to take jobs. It is good to get away. It is Good to get out of your comfort zone, go to another country, go to another stable, spend a week in the gym. But you must, you must, as, as a coach, you must know your fighter is ready to handle himself um, defensively as as well as offensively. Because it, I, hear, I hear some bad horror stories. I, I've seen some bad horror stories as well. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Tell you a story about sparring. <laughs> So I, I went over to train with Freddie Roach. Um, I was meant to fight Dimitri Pirog. To def- I was European champion. He was on mandatory. Um, so I went over there. Ten and a half weeks out from the fight. That's that's a lot of time. You know, I, I wasn't in shape. I was like thirteen and a half stone. I, you know, hadn't trained probably in a few good few weeks. So I was I was out of shape completely. So I thought, you know, ten and a half weeks. I'm giving myself plenty of time. I thought we'll have a month losing weight, getting fit. 
getting to know Buddy, you know, uh, Buddy, Freddie, working the pads, working my style, all that sort of thing. I went over there. I did a week hitting the bags and the pads, and then I was sparring. So I started sparring nine weeks outright for this fight. I'm weighing 13 and a half stone. I'm out of shape. And so I don't know who I'm, I'm going to, The wild card's a crazy place. Back then it was. This is 2010. This was the peak of Manny Pacquiao's career. Right? This is where the wild card was at its peak. You know, everyone was winning there. So you, on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you, you, you pull in at like 9.30, quarter to 10. You know, 10, you're 10 o'clock your time. So you're getting there just before 10. And I'm on about, you can't park the car. You have to park like up another couple of blocks and walk sometimes. You go in. The gym is chuck-a-block. You can't even move in there. No one can hit the back, you know, because everyone's waiting to spar. And you walk in and Freddie's up in the ring and doing the corner with someone and they'll go to me, oh, uh, you're, you're in seven rounds. So I'm, not, so I'm getting ready and I'm thinking, who, you know, who the fuck am I sparring? Blah, blah. Anyway, I jump in and I spar four rounds with this Russian kid who was, I think, 6-0 and at the time. He'd only, but he'd only boxed the week before. It was Fedor Chudinov. Now, <laughs> I basically had a four-round absolute raving straightener. <laughs> what the fuck just happened there? You know what I mean? Because this kid coming in, he's strong. He's he don't know know me. He's in the wild card. There's about sixty or seventy people watching. The pressure's on. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's ego's on the line here. I've got nine weeks to fix them off. Boy, I'm thinking, what the fuck's going on? I'm going. I mean, life and death. Do you know what I mean? This guy's trying to take the head off me. So I'm obviously trying to stand my ground and, and take the head back. But, you know, and that was and that was the same, the Wednesday, the Friday. I think the following, so two weeks from now, I think it was when I was seven or eight weeks out, I remember sparring eight rounds. I did three with Fedor Chudinov, three with his brother Dimitri on the bounce, and then two with Kingsley Aikiki, who was shut to bits, but he was still massive, six foot four, like everyway. And I'm like, I'm completely out of shape, middleweight, <laughs> carrying a stone or, and whatever else of fats and booze and what a, I'm sweat, trying to still sweat out of me. And I'm just thinking, like, what the fuck's going on? Do you know what I mean? He's like, no, you know, so when you look at that and you look at the wild card and you hear the stories about the crunk back in the day, and, I'm, and, and listen, Freddie, he's a knowledgeable guy and a good trainer, but also... You've got, the, you've got the creme de la creme of, of fighters there that are hungry and starving to make it, that can all fight like fuck, and they're just slung in there. Whoever comes out on top, they're going to be a good fighter, and they're going to go on and win world titles. Do you know mm. what I'm saying? So I, I think there was a lot... And I remember saying this to Joe Gallagher with a couple of fighters when he was going to the camp, said, use the wild card. Don't let the wild card use you. You know... It's, you're going over there for 10 weeks. I didn't need to be there for 10 weeks. If I'd have been... Anyway, lo and behold, I got injured and the fight never happened. But if if I hadn't got injured, I wouldn't, there wouldn't have been a fight in 10 weeks. I'd have fought it all out of me. Do you know what I mean? It was like, mm. you know, because I, I am someone, and especially being out of shape, sparring, I, when, I'm, when, I was at, when I was as razor sharp as I could be, I was still the type of guy that would get hit. That's my style. But... You know, really, that kind of level, that sort of intensity where you've got 60 people in the gym, everyone watching you, you're sparring some stranger. It basically, it's a fight with 16-ounce gloves on. Two weeks, six sessions, fucking plenty. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? And, and you want to be going over there sharp because you're having a fight. You're sparring hard for two weeks. Now, don't get me wrong. 
if you do, if you go over there super fit and sharp, and you've already sparred, and you're going over there, hitting the ground running, and you get two weeks of that level intensity sparring, you are razor. You are razor, and that that will take you to that next level, that level intensity inspiring. But there's it, there's a difference between being battle hardened and leaving it in the gym. So I'll just get back to the the subject of rest because what what I was going to ask you is basically it's always seemed to me that of these kind of three things involved in your preparation: training, eating, resting. That's the holy trinity, really, isn't it? Mm. Rest should be the easiest one to achieve because you just don't physically exert yourself. I've given a masterclass in it today. I've sat on my sofa and watched The Sopranos. Elite level. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm elite level at it. Absolutely elite level. But it's not, it's not good enough just to be able to physically rest when, when you're a fighter. You need to be able to turn, you've got to be able to turn your brain off, particularly in professional boxing, when you've got a date because if you don't, there's a danger that you might lie on your bed. And Liam Williams said this to us, that he would go, he would go and rest when he's in Sheffield. And, and what he found really hard, what he finds really hard is that his mind will be racing about what about this? What about that? Or what about I should have done this? I should have done that. What will I do tomorrow? Wonder what my opponent's doing? All the rest of it. If you can't switch off, then you're going to be mentally exhausted when you go to the gym the next day, when you do have to physically exert yourself. So how do you do that? Because I've always thought that must be very, very difficult when you've got this extremely unusual situation where you've got, right, in 61 days, let's just say, you are going to get in the ring and you are going to fight this man. And if you lose that fight, you are the lesser man. How do you not obsess about it every single second of the day? Yeah, I just think it's the type of person you are. I think that's the only way you can't. I think you can't, if, if you're the type of person who's going to worry and the type of person who's going to think about it, you're just going to think about it. You know, if, you, if you've got that laid back attitude and, you know, you just take, take, everything, take everything in stride, you'll get over it. But I think if you're that type of person who will start thinking what your opponent's doing, what he's eating for breakfast, what, what sparring he's having, it's just going to be there. You're not going to be able to, to switch off. And I think... Um, as a fighter, as a professional athlete or a professional fighter, you just have to deal with it, them things. And it's just one, one of the things that's part of the game. How about you, Matt? Is it, is it just something that you get used to? You just accept how you are? As, as Enzo said there, you, you accept your own psychological makeup? Or can you kind of work on that? Were the times when you were younger where you just thought, I'm obsessing here to an unhealthy degree. I have to become better at not doing this. No, I mean, I, I would have suffered with that for massive parts of my career. There was times when I'd be physically exhausted but could not sleep because my mind would be just racing like <clears throat> unstoppable. Um, when I fought Jorge Sebastian Highland, and, and this, this ties in with that and also with overtraining, I fought Jorge Sebastian Highland in Dublin. It was a final eliminator for WBC title and he would have won and I got the Cotto fight I was 32 years old anyway I was back training with Gallagher in Manchester and Gallagher's a taskmaster and anyway couldn't do a lot of sparring because of, of my knuckles were, were, were bruised from the fight I'd had a few weeks before in Germany anyway point, I'll get to the quick of the chase so one of the this last real hard session on the Wednesday 10 sort of 10 days out we did he wanted me to do 10 rounds on the bar bag 
So I did the 10 rounds in the bar back. And Gallagher's a taskmaster. He trained me early in my career and he pushes your buttons. And I wanted to fucking show Gallagher that I still had it in me, that I still had the hunger. So when I got to the end of the 10 and that was done and that was the box tick, I was like, nah, I'll do 12 because I'm fucking got the bit between my teeth and I'm going to show you I've still got it. You know, in my, in my mad mind. So I've done the 12, right? Now that, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done anything more than a bit of shadow boxing and a bit of skipping between then and the fight. You know, I've done 12 rounds on that bar and I've fucking put it in, even on the bag, not just jumping the bar. Right, so, and I, and I know all about overtraining at this stage of my career. I'm 32 years old, but this is the insanity of the mad mind and the loneliness in boxing and the overthinking. So, I'm, I'm on my airbed that evening, after, you know, chilling out. I've no telling no tell off where I was. I was just literally on an airbed. So, I'm lying there and I thought, do you know what? I'll go down and I'll do, I'll do a few rounds on the rower, right? And, and this is just pure insanity today. But if, if I shouldn't have done anything, I should have just gone for a walk. And at the absolute most, I should have done 30-minute, 8K an hour plot, if anything. But really, I shouldn't have done anything. But anyway, I go down and I do six rounds on the rower, six three-minute rounds, as hard as I can, right? <laughs> I, come back up, I come back upstairs and I'm so overtrained that the oxygen debt is that massive inside me I don't sleep a fucking wink because I'm so overtrained you don't when you when you go over like that you don't you, you could take you, you might you might not get it back can't for get, a few weeks yeah, you can't get take back. three or four weeks to come back from that I didn't come back from it <laughs> when I was in the fight I was fucked but and that's why I think I boxed again after that because I knew I'd fucked up I knew I knew that I'd overtrained for the fight. And I knew, you know, when I thought back on it, I thought I didn't want to retire then because that would have irritated me. And I think I may have, I would have come back. Had I retired after that then, I think because of that, I think I would have come back. So I had the few fights after that, but look, the appetite wasn't there anymore. But I, it, my point being, we, we're boxers, we're, we're not normal people. To get in the ring and want to have a fight, you, there's got to be someone mad about you a little bit. And then to go and indulge on this career, which is a lonely path. Like Enzo said, Running all, all the running and the thingy, really, like scientifically, that's wrong. But mentally, maybe it had to satisfy the hunger that I've done everything, I've gritted it out, and there is something to that, maybe. But I think fighters, we need someone that not only know what they're doing, but they know what we're like, and they've got to keep an eye yeah. on us. Go, hey, mate, don't do fuck all tomorrow, or that'll do you now, and, and ring up. Is it make sure he's not training? Do you know what I mean? Because we want to do more because we, you know what it is? It's that fear of failure, fear of failure, wanting to do more all the time. I, think, I know I think, Enzo can relate. <laughs> oh, 100%. I think mentally, I, I was always try. I never had that sort of fear over anyone. I think that was one of my downfalls. I never, I was, I was very self motivated and, you know, I could work myself to the ball and, you know, I, I got someone in front of me. All I could think of, I'm going to smash fuck out of him. That's all I thought of. Didn't care what he did. Didn't care what he'd done. Everyone I fought never boxed. If I watched some videos, they didn't box like that against me. Except I carry too much power. Uh, and I don't think. But the one thing I used to fucking mess my head up, especially early on in my career, is those bastard ticket sales. <laughs> yeah, I'll have, I'll have 20 off he wins. And then 10 days, five days before, oh, I only won three. And you think, of fucking element. And then someone else phones you. And I think people, people don't realise what it's like for a young fighter coming through, having to sell a certain amount of tickets just 
just to get a little wage. You know, I, I shared change rooms with you a few times, didn't I? I think you can't yeah, do Yeah, we had a few, a few change rooms. <laughs> it, it, it was sort of... But by fight week, in a fight week, you sold 800 tickets. By the end of fight week, you <laughs> sold about 400. And then you've got to explain, you've got to give all them 400 tickets back to promote that. And I don't think, I think people think when you start off as a pro boxer, you're going to, you're going to get paid loads of money. Uh, you know, I think I had a grand for my first fight, maybe 1,200 quid. Uh, I, I know a boy, um, I'll tell you a story, Lee Man, Lee Man, who his name is, he used to box my dad, really good amateur. Um, had his first pro fight. Uh, obviously, the promoter gave him some tickets. He thought they were his tickets. He had to he gave them out with family and friends. Uh, his first fight, he owed the promoter six hundred quid. <laughs> he thought they were his. He was giving up this. People just don't realise the stress. The stress a young fighter is under to sell tickets to pay for his opponent just so he can have a couple of quid, maybe five six hundred quid. Is 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 fucking party. I'm laughing there. I'm just thinking to myself, you going back with the 400 tickets when you've ordered 800, and they're thinking, they're thinking, fuck me, Enzo's a bullshitter. He wanted 800 tickets. <laughs> you're thinking, it ain't me. They're bullshitting me. <laughs> but then you've got, you've got the next guy behind me then. Yeah, everyone's bullshitting everyone. You've got 600 with him. You've got the next one behind him. But you sold two. Get out. It's crazy, man. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. T- ticket sales, are, I've heard so many stories about ticket sales. Often I'd, I'd ring a fighter the day before a fight or if it, there had been a late change, I might see someone the morning of and, and they'd been out that day delivering tickets to people. It's it's an absolute grind. Um Something else we do have to talk about, though, because people are, are fascinated by this, I still am, is is making weight. Um, now, with you, Enzo, this would be much more applicable to your light heavyweight fights because cruiserweight, as you say, was generally pretty comfy for you, particularly when it went to, to 200 pounds. But it is it is a science making weight, uh, particularly now, particularly in recent years. It's maybe become a bit too much of a a contest of how low can you go on a Friday lunchtime? It's not necessarily the best thing to just get as low as you can. That's not necessarily the right weight for you, but we'll, we'll come on to that. But okay, Matt, we'll, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. When you were a middleweight, what would you weigh on a Monday of fight week? And what would you do during the week? How would you take it down? Take us through it. You know, so when I was at middleweight, looking back, if I knew then what I knew now in terms of the you know the water load and cut, the water cut, I could have every single fight I had. I could have made like middle. You know, I was only taking the twenty four hours before the fight. Like I probably didn't train for two out two two days before the fight. I didn't train, and in the morning. So let's say the, the weigh-ins on a Friday. I definitely have the Thursday off. Maybe even the Wednesday doing nothing. And then this is when I was at middleweight. And then on the on the Friday morning. 
I'd maybe skip three or four pound off. Like that's nothing really. I'd, 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 and I'd, I'd, you know, I would have watched, probably not had carbs on those two days that I had off, like the Wednesday and the Thursday. I wouldn't have had carbohydrates that day. So I want to hold on to the water. But then literally on the Friday, I'd only have three or four pounds to skip off. I mean, I know guys that are doing 12 pounds in that 24 hours in hot baths and, and fighting 12 rounds, no problem the next day. I think what happened to me was the Jamie Moore fight, I think, scarred me a little bit. But in hindsight, obviously the weight was an issue, but it was also how I took that weight off. You know, I was running like fuck on the treadmill to get it off because, you know, the water didn't come off me. <clears throat> when I stopped drinking the water, it didn't. I didn't lose as much as I thought. Obviously, you needed to sweat it out, but I, I was kind of under the advice or under the impression that once I kind of just water loaded then cut my water and drank plenty of vitamin C that it all just that I'd lose it on it didn't happen obviously so then I was running like fucking a sweatsuit and all that and I, and I was drained but it wasn't just the weight with the more fight it was the, it was the, it was the pace I set out at and how much energy I wasted loading up on shots it was it, it was only part of it so obviously I moved up to middleweight and I didn't I didn't I didn't take a lot off so I didn't put a lot on I probably only put eight pounds on after after I weighed in you know, so when I, I was probably 12 stone in, on the night of the fight um, because I didn't take a lot off. You know, that last that last 24 hours, I owed, like I said, three, four pounds and maybe lost a couple of pounds that week by depleting my carbs. So, you know, there was only there was only seven, eight pounds to put back on. But you guys like Canelo and Chavez Jr. are putting 20 pounds on and stuff. They are doing a massive water cut. They're like, they're probably cutting their carbs from 10 days out and they are doing 12 pounds on the last 24 hours in hot baths, maybe two or three different goes in the bath. It's an ordeal. But I only seen that really with a guy who we, we're going to get on at some point, uh, Andy, Chris Mayer, who, who fights MMA, not UFC, but um, Bama and, and Cage Warriors. And, you know, he's he's a smaller guy than me. He's only probably like a 70 kilo kid, less than that even. And he's, you know, he's doing he was doing like 10, 11 pounds in like 24 hour period. So I, I've, I've seen that it could be done. And I've seen Paul Smith, Liam Smith, they all do like, you know, they all do 10 pounds the night before from the, from the Thursday night to the Friday way. And they're, they're doing 10 pounds in, in a session and a hot bath. What, what was it like for you at light heavyweight? Um, to be honest, it, it wasn't that bad. Um, I used to walk around, I used to walk around even at the cruiserweight division and I used to walk around with 13 stone eight. So that's well under, uh, the 14 stone fall limit. I always remember uh, as a cruiser, it used to be a big joke. Uh, way in, way in day at the breakfast table, I see, I see Paul Smith there, you know, sucking on an ice cube at breakfast. I'm having a full on breakfast, and I'm just laughing and joking. And but then I'd weigh in, and the example I'd use would be Mark Hobson. When I fought Mark Hobson, I remember weighing in, uh, looking at him. My brother phoned me, he said, Dan. I was looking, I said, I'm going to snap his fucking in half. I said, he, he's, you know, he's got nothing on him. I'm going to rip him in half. Come fight night, you go in the ring. I remember thinking, fuck, is that the same person? It, it was like a, it was a, a massive difference. But as, as I liked heavyweight, uh, I really studied things. I really looked after my diet. Uh, I ate clean. Uh, I drank loads of water. I took salt out of my diet. And uh, a week a week of a fight uh, on the Friday, so I had a fight on the Saturday, so the Friday, the Friday away. And week of a fight, I'd be about 13 stone six. Uh, I'd up my water to uh, eight liters of water. Um, I'd go for a run in the morning early. I'd have black coffee, go for a run uh, in my sweatsuit. 
which which I'd done all through camp. I just felt I just felt more comfortable warming up quickly in a sweatsuit. It didn't didn't hinder me, didn't bother me. Um, I'd have my porridge. Uh, I'd have blueberries, banana. Uh, I'd go training again at twelve o'clock with a sweatsuit again, but I'd only do I do 10, 12 rounds on the bags, and I mean really liked just to get a sweat on. I'd have a protein shake and an apple and a handful of nuts. And then about four o'clock, I'd have brown rice, tuna, onions, and then a side of broccoli, spinach, runner beans, olive oil, and vinegar. Now, I, I do that. I do that every day for a week. Uh, on the last two days, I cut it down to six liters of water. On the day before the weigh-in, I'd stop. I'd have a black coffee at four o'clock. That would be my last. That's the natural diuretic of black coffee. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd be four pounds overweight. Uh, I'd jump in a hot bath for 20, 25 minutes, uh, and I was done. And you know, I'd, I'd get on a scale, and you know, people people thought it was going to be such a hard hard work for me, but it wasn't. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't. It wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. I had to be strict. I had to be really clean with it. Uh, and then for me, the, the process of putting it back on was also scientific. I was uh, drinking coconut water. Slowly, so it's natural uh, electrolytes in there. Uh, then I'd have a couple of grapes. Then I'd have, uh, maybe an hour later, I'd have some more water. Then I'd have like a, a banana and peanut butter sandwich just just get my stomach a, a little bit bigger. And then, and then I would just load up and, uh, the night of the fight is a light heavyweight. I'd be 13 stone 6, 13 stone 7, uh, which is pretty much the same weight as what I was as a cruiserweight anyway. So I did say at the start there that it, it's become, it seems to me anyway, that it's maybe become a bit too much of a competition boxing in a sense of how low can you go on a Friday lunchtime? What, what's the lowest possible weight you can weigh in at? That people almost seem to look at that and just think that's what I need to do because imagine how massive I'll be at the weight on Saturday night. But it's not that simple, is it? Because if you're super professional, there are weights that you can make, but it doesn't mean that that's the weight you should fight at. Well, when, when, I, when I fought like heavy, my first fight with Oval McKenzie, I didn't, I didn't change my diet. I didn't think. I jumped on a scale. I weighed 12 stone five. So it's two pound under under the light heavyweight limit. It might have might have been less than that. And I was okay. I was talking, and Matt will probably tell you. I've seen people on the scale at a weight they they can't string a sentence together. They've literally got nothing left. And you know, a couple of people mentioned you know, you could get down to super middleweight. And yeah, I could have. <laughs> wouldn't have been ideal for me. I wouldn't have functioned right on it. And then those extra those extra four or five pounds, or say we, say the extra seven pounds from light heavyweight. They would absolutely kill me. Um, so you know, light heavyweight was was a little struggle. It wasn't it wasn't too hard on the body, um, but any lower would have been uh, detrimental to my health. Yeah, and, and and likewise, I mean, as I said before, every single fight I had as a middleweight, knowing if I knew then what I did now, I could have made light middle. But I don't think I would have boxed a light middle because I think a middle was a good weight for me in terms. I wasn't the fastest. So, you know, going down lighter, the guys were a bit quicker. Even though I was boxing at middleweight and some of those big middleweights were bigger than me, they never felt stronger than me. I always had, I fought out, I was someone that threw a lot of punches, you know. So, you know, if you're someone, if you're taking off 12 pounds in the last 24 hours and you're putting on 16, 17, 18 pounds, 
you're probably going to be someone that fight, fights in bursts, that picks his shots, picks his moments, because you probably know you've only got a few bursts per round, because it does affect, at some point, it has to have a, an effect. So I still think I was better at middleweight. What, but what I would have done if I had my time again, I wouldn't have, um, I would have had more carbohydrates that week. I still would have took more water out in water. I would have took more weight out in water. I wouldn't mm. have took 10, 12 pounds, but I would have took more than three or four. Do you know what I mean? And I probably would have put a bit, so I just had more carbohydrates the whole week. And also further when I started camp, knowing that I had a bit more give, I'd have probably done a bit more strength training and not being afraid that if I put a couple of pounds of muscle on because I can afford to. You know, I still, I still would have boxed as a middleweight because I think it was a weight that suited me better than, than grinding down to light middle. Could I have made it? Yeah, I could have made it and I could have fought at it, but I don't know if I could have fought at it in my style, with my energy. I think I'd have been, I'd have had to have altered it. That 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 weight limit for me, the cruise weight, weight limit of 13 stone 8 suited me perfectly. Um, you know, I'd have to cut, cut a little bit of weight to make 13 8 and I'm talking a pound two pound at the most um, then it went up to 14 stone four and I, I was just back too small you know I, I was fighting I was fighting boys uh, coming in on fight now 15 stone three 15 stone four and I weighed 38 and it, it was mad because even though I was like there's a cruise where I had fast hands I did any heavyweight I sparred I'd tell you I was just as strong as any heavyweight I could, I could certainly hit as hard as ever any heavyweight but I had really fast hands, and that was the edge I had. When I went down to light heavyweight, I, you know, I, I was ragdolling boys. I was, I was too strong for them. I was so good. But then that that speed, that speed advantage leveled out. Didn't have mm. the faster hands anymore. And you know, I still had fast hands, but I didn't have the fastest hands. As a cruiserweight, it was very rare we would have got someone with faster hands than me. So that thirty-eight limit would have been would have been. Idea for me, but I won a world title of fourteen four, so it's pointless me complaining. So, so what do you think about the the argument of the argument between day before weighing as opposed to day of weighing? Because it wasn't it wasn't that long ago that they used to weigh in on the day of the fight, and the argument is that basically you are less likely to put your body through the same amount of trauma, and therefore the safety of fighters overall would be better. But they they done it anyway. And, and that was the point. Um, you know, they, they would still be cutting three or four pounds, uh, probably probably less than what they would do the day before, but they still cutting three or four pounds on the day, but then they fight in two hours later. Um, you know, Martin, Martin see himself, and if, if he was fighting, if he was fighting middleweight and he had the same day weighing, there's no way he'd be making middleweight limit. Same as me as a light heavyweight, there's no way I'd be coming closer light heavyweight the same day weighing. Um, but fighters were jumping in saunas, they were doing the weight cutting and they were weighing in uh, and then fighting a couple of hours later where they had no no choice. Lately, the MMA, the UFC in particular, they have um, they have an official weigh-in and they have a public weigh-in. So the official weigh-in is the Saturday, Friday morning. I think it's about 8 o'clock in the morning. So it, give, it gives them more time to recover. Then, they, then you see the weigh-in on the scales uh, in front of the crowds. Uh, they have it at 2 o'clock. And they, they seem full, they seem frail. You know, you look at it and think, well, you know, he's he done his weight right. But it, it's sort of, that's the ceremonial way. And I don't know whether that would work, um, just having that extra time to put, put more weight on. But then would it come into certain fighters' heads they can take more off 
Uh, it's, it's just it's just a fine it's just a fine line. People people are gonna find a way uh, to gain any advantage whichever way they can. There's no perfect system, and people are always going to try and stretch it. Always. So, so just before we leave this subject, I've just got one more thing I want to want to talk about after this, and then um, and uh, uh, and then we'll let you go, Enzo. You've already been very generous with uh, with your time. What what is Waterloo? I've been exactly? I mean, full lockdown. I got nothing else to do. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, you you've said it now. You've said it now. I'll be here for the rest of the evening. What what, what is water loading exactly? Water water loading is uh, you pump your body full of water. Um, you take the salt of the system. So you have a bit of salt. Uh, it, it will hold on. It will hold on. So the, you you drink eight liters of water. You will pay, pee out eight and a half liters of water. You drink six liters of water. You pee out six and a half liters of water. But if you if you if you take a little bit of salt. You will drink six liters of water, and you will pee out five liters of water. So it would hold on to you. So it just gets your body excreting water. Just get rid of the water. And uh, the perfect example for me with the water water. And I remember the second Mackenzie fight. Um, I had a check weigh-in. I think it was three days before. Uh, I phoned him up. I said, "What have I got to be?" Uh, he said, uh, 12 stone eleven." I said, "Yeah, fine, no problem at all." Went for my run in the morning. Uh, he came at nine o'clock. I went for my run. Jumped on a scale, 12 stone 11, smack on. Gary, Gary Locker phoned me. I said, three hours later, he said, oh, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, you failed the check weight. I said, well, I am failed the check weight. They told me 12 11, I weighed 12 11. He said, oh, he had it wrong. It was 12 10. He said, he's on his way back down now. I said, well, he can't come down now. He said, why? I said, about 13 4, 13 5. He said, my God, how have we done that? So he said, oh, don't worry. He said, I said, I'll have to wait tomorrow. He said, we'll have to wait 12, 9 tomorrow. I said, yeah, it's fine. She phones me up at 4 o'clock. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm having tea. He said, the fuck is the way I'm having tea? He said, we're going to make 12, 9 tomorrow. I said, don't worry. I know what I'm doing. So I get up in the morning, done my run as normally come, uh, pull the water out of me from, from the run, um, 12, stone 8. It's, it's, it's very scientific, but, you know, you can, you can drop, you can drop massive amounts of weight. You know, I've done... I done uh, four or five pounds in a hot bath in 20, 25 minutes. I stay in that bath for another another 20, 25 minutes. I'm rocking another four or five pounds. So I'm rocking a 10 pound in 40 minutes. So it, it can pull off a lot of weight. But well, I've just got to say, trust me, anyone that's listening, it's fucking murder sitting in that bath. <laughs> oh, it's, but it's it, not as easy as it sounds. But, it, but again, it's, 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 it's potty, but... I'd rather do it in a bath than sit in a sauna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean. I've seen, I've seen Gavin. You can breathe. Oh, yeah. I've seen Gavin Reese in a sauna. Um, we, we've got about mental side of weight in a minute. No, I've seen Gavin Reese in a sauna, half hour, 40 minutes. He can't drop half an ounce. And that, that is bone dry. And the story with Gary is, and Gary with Gavin, he bought Gary Buckland. Down the, mat, down the Morton Point Arena and he done for the first time in his whole life he done the weight right he done it perfect he, he had a nutrition plan he had uh, he done the water loading he done he done everything right he lost the fight he came on he said to Gary he said no oh, that didn't suit me Gary said what do you mean didn't suit me he said I can't do it like that I can't do it like that I've got to do it my way so they had the rematch and I remember, I remember seeing Gavin in the back of Gary's car. 
and he, he looked like a three-year-old boy. He, you know, he, just about the way that he was tiny. He lost so much weight. He, he could barely, he could barely get up on the on the scale. I, I say barely, he got up on the scale, but it, it would, it would like laugh and joking like he was last time. He refilled. He boxed the next night. He was amazing. And you know, just some some things just suit fighters. And uh, and this this is where I talk about sports scientists. Sports scientists like like to get in and tell you to do this, tell you to do that. The good ones will know not everything not everything will suit the same person. Every everyone is different. But you, you talk about examples there of people taking a lot of weight out late on. You do have check weights. So if that's how you do it, do you kind of crash or kind of cheat to make those check weights as well? Because you're supposed to be within 3% on a Wednesday for a fight on a Saturday. Yeah, and you know that's what I did. I made, I made sure that I'd, I'd weigh all through camp as a light weight. I'd weigh every morning after I'd gone for a run. Uh, so I'd know how much, how much weight I'd be taking off. But is you know there are a lot of fighters who, who cheat the check weights. You know, they, they, they starve themselves, they crash and diet and put it back on. And then two days later, they're going to take it off again. You know, yeah. that is going to be detrimental yeah. to your health. The check weight is actually an unhealthy thing because everyone's drawing out for the check weight, fueling back up and then drawing out again, where it actually been better to just dry out the once, you know, to dry mm-hmm. out and put it back in and dry out. Actually, that check weight isn't, I know it in theory, it's supposed to be for safety, but it isn't because everyone just bullshits it. Yeah, like, like you said, you, you, <laughs> twice in a three-day period, twice you were drying your body to, to the core. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely it's crazy when you're an observer like me, just just looking on. It's um, actually I. Remember- <laughs> I did quite a funny thing a couple of years ago. So I was due to go, you'll, you'll like this because it just makes me look like an absolute tool. Um, but um, I was going in, I was going in for a medical um, for some new life insurance or health insurance that I'd, that I'd got. I've always kept myself in decent shape, nothing supersonic, but you know, I, I like to be fit enough. Um, and so obviously like my pulse, my pulse. Engage your solid goal. <laughs> <laughs> That's your benchmark. Yeah, mate. No, no further than that. There's no, there's no, there's no need to run further than that. Um, but um, anyway, so I go in for this medical and um, I, I, I was within the, the weight range for the BMI and all the rest of it. Um, but I just thought, I don't know what happened to me, but the day before I just thought, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get my weight down. I'm going to get my weight down for this medical. So for 24 hours before I had this medical, I didn't eat or drink anything. Um, and I lost about eight pounds. But my blood pressure went through the fucking roof. Um, and I, I, I didn't know this would happen. So the points I would have got, and I was within the range for the BMI anyway, so you get points for like a good pulse, a good blood pressure, a good BMI, whatever. If I hadn't bothered doing it, I would have got full marks on each one. But as it was, out of pure vanity, I crashed a load of weight on the final day. But that sent my blood pressure up. Um, so, um, so I lost out. So I lost out, and I was saying to this nurse, "No, you don't understand. You don't understand. My blood pressure is normally fine." And then she asked, and then she said, "So, what, so what's happened?" And I explained it to her. And she just, she looked at me. And she said, "You're just an absolute dickhead, aren't you? Why did you do that?" Um, and I didn't really have an answer. I didn't really have an answer. Um, but it, it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, the, the human body's a, it's a mad piece of kit, really, because. I remember reading an interview with, uh, you talked about rehydration then, so, and that, that is, if you're doing a big weight cut, you talk about fighters, fighters get it wrong, don't they? And fighters have said it to me, oh, I did the weight right, 
and then I did the rehydration wrong. And I, I can never get my head around that because I just think you've done all that hard work. You, you're so nearly there. And then you just get it wrong after the weigh-in. Mate, I've seen, uh, oh, what was it? Bradley Price. He boxed Matthew, Matthew Hall, I think, up in Manchester. Um, he, he, he cut the weight. He'd done the weight as he, as he normally does. Never, never done it great, but he, he'd done the weight. He got on the scale. I remember, I remember his, his legs shaking on the scale. You know, he had, he had nothing in him. Jumps off the scale. He starts drinking two or three pints of chocolate milk. Now, cho- chocolate milk, is a, is a good is it's a good recovery you know people don't realize a chocolate milkshake after the training session stuff like that is it's got good good proteins in it good good sugars in it and it, it recovery not after you've dried out for 24 hours and, and he banged these three pints of chocolate milk down him uh neither say the fight didn't do too great for him i uh, think he got stopped in the first rounds and you know it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of boys like you just said they cut the weight they make the weight but then putting it back on, they just haven't got a clue. They just think the more they eat, the more they drink, uh, you know, it's, it's going to go in their system. But, you know, if you, if you put in shit in your system, you can end up fighting shit. When I, when I boxed Andrew Facey, right, I was, so probably for a few weeks before the fight, I was probably weighing around 11 stone eight before training. That's what I was sparring at, say. Obviously, they made, uh, made the weight 11 stone. I gluttoned to get up to 12 stone because I was, re- again, going going back to that reading what everyone else was doing and Ricky Hatton was putting a stone on and this one was putting a stone on or they were saying they were putting a stone on. So I'm eating like a horse. You'd think I'd never been fed. I, was, I weren't even hungry. I was forcing food. Down <laughs> and I ate myself up to 12 stone. And afterwards, on the night of the fight, I looked fleshy, right? Because I was holding so much water I ate myself up to 12 stone. I hadn't been 12 stone for about six weeks before that fight. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't sparring at 12 stone. Do you know what I mean? I didn't cut that much water out really mm. for the Andrew Face fight. I think it was like, I think the the week of the fight, you know, I was, I was 11 stone after training for probably 10 days out before the fight. You know, at that point in my career, I'd never known about water cutting or anything like this, but I was reading that everyone was putting a stone on. So I was eating and eating and eating. And I remember, I remember on the fight warming up, I felt I didn't feel sharp. I felt proper sluggish. And then, you know, it was a scrappy fight anyway. But like, I remember thinking, fucking hell, I completely fucked up there. I ate far too, eating for the sake of it, just thinking that putting on more weight was gonna was a good thing to do when it was a terrible thing to do. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be there, boss, Mackenzie the second time. Um, I thought I'd say that Susan Cardiff, I, I went up my mother's, I stayed at my mother's, or I'd gone and stayed in a hotel, I went up my mother's. So I jumped off the scale. I had my I had my pint of coconut water, set that had a couple of grapes. Um, going home in the car, say an hour. Uh, I had my peanut butter banana sandwich. Guest of my mother's, uh, she made me steak, salted potatoes, spinach. Two hours later, I had a chicken pasta. Two hours later, I had uh, apple crumble and ice cream. Two hours later, I had the rest of an apple crumble and ice cream. Half past ten, I found Domino's pizza. So I'm eating a pizza now, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm, I'm loving life. I'm enjoying it. As soon as I had the last bit of pizza went down me, I remember laying on a settee thinking, fuck it, I've got to fight the hall. <laughs> I was in a food coma on a settee. I woke up in the morning. Oh, my God. I, I had to go for a, I, I think I went for a little two-mile run the day of a fight just to, just to feel, 
feel normal again. And you know, sometimes, like you say, you just you just get get glutton and you just, you just you just feed yourself till you can't stop, and then, and then you pay the price. I fucked up. I fucked it up. <laughs> I mean, I thought I should have got the decision, but I remember walking up, feeling sluggish as fuck. And I felt sharp the week before. Do you know what I mean? all, all that week I felt razor sharp. Warming up on the pads, I felt fucking slow. I felt it was so heavy. People don't realise with, with boxing, it's the finest line. How you feel on that fight now? Let me talk about rest, recover, diet. Everything just comes into play, and it's it's that finest line, and it's all it's all all on that. Not even not even the the day before. It's all on that day. You know, you've literally got to have everything spot on to get in the ring. And very rare, my, my attorney, very rare you will go in that ring 100%. You know, I, I see people come up with this and injuries and all that. So does everyone else. You know, there are, there are a few that have way, way beyond what you should be going in the ring with. But 90% of fighters go in that ring, probably less than 90%. And I'm even talking top fighters as well. Well, it's amazing, really, when you think about it, that throughout training camp, you are trying to make everything work to the point where you can get yourself to peak or as near as you can to it, to a particular almost minute or quarter of an hour segment, because you can't be absolutely sure when the fight's going to start. When you think about it in those terms, it's uh, it's mind-boggling, really. Um, yeah, you think about it from in the younger days when you were a floater. I'm sure Mark was a floater once or twice. You know, we've made all our weight. You've got, you know, you, you've warmed up about four or five times and you've still not on. And then, then someone else, someone else goes the distance that should have been knocked out. So you've, you've gloved up at six o'clock. You're, you're in the ring at 12. I've I done it twice. And I, I'm sure Mark has. <laughs> happened to me when Ricky Hatton fought Eamon McGee. I was meant to be the fight at six o'clock. You know, the one where they put in the can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I ended up being the floater. Anyway, I ended up coming out after Hatton and, and McGee. And you know, you time your food. So I was going to meet to box at half six. So I think I had my last meal at about half two that day. I didn't, I didn't box till like 10 to 12 on the night. I was starving. It's crazy, is it? It's, <laughs> it's, I, I wouldn't, to be honest, I wouldn't recommend uh, a life of a fighter for anyone. You know, people people see the stars and the, and the you know the money, the cars and stuff like that. But it's a lonely, lonely place, and it's uh, a lot. A lot of it is on you. It's great now talking what? about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but <laughs> during those times, you know, it's uh, it's a it's a lonely, miserable place. You know, the amount of the amount of times I walk towards that ring, uh, I remember thinking to myself, "Fuck, I'm not doing this again." I can't go through this again. And then you have a win, you have a, you have a glorious win. Well, can't wait for the next one. But then it's a it's a fucking mad sport. It is. It is. It's 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 um it's it's definitely a lot easier, I think, to love boxing. Um, if like me, you don't actually have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but like like Matt said, it, it's something. It's something wired wrong in your head to enjoy. I know I posted something on Twitter uh, about some guy riding on a bike down the hill and I remember thinking, what a crazy fucker. And some guy just said, ends. He'll get punched in the head for a fucking living. And I thought, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, you've got to be wired wrong to want to step in the ring in, in front of everyone, in front of people where, especially in this day and age now, you, you, you're going in front, you're going in front of people to get criticised. You know, 
some of the, some of the stuff I see written on social media, the, the fighters, and uh, it, it's just, it's just party. So you've literally put yourself out there to be fucking hammered. Mark Tyson nailed it, didn't he? he? Said social media got too many motherfuckers getting too comfortable disrespecting and people. He, he, <laughs> he's he's spot on. He is spot on. You see some you see some of these boys. Um, they say stuff are fighting. You're thinking, no way on this earth would you fucking stand in front of them and say that. You shit. No, no people say. I'm not you know, when people say, oh, I grew my Tyson for never fought in their life, but I grew my Tyson for a million pounds. They wouldn't physically be able to leave the changing room through the nerves. The paralyzed with fear. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. And you know, I laugh and people say, "Fucking give me a million pounds." Like, no, you wouldn't. You literally wouldn't get off your so and so ring walk. Oh fucking hell! You, you just would not be able to move. It's, it's <laughs> a crazy a pound. <laughs> uh, yeah, for a cra- it's a crazy life, isn't it? Forty forty million pounds on the table, jumping with Mike Tyson around. You would not be able to get off your chair. Fuck this thing going on, like. I've lost count of the amount of times that 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 people I know who have who have had a white collar have reckoned that they've got themselves really fit and have said to me, oh, you know, how long do you think I would last with whoever? And I've just said, oh, my answer is always the same. I'll just say it would last as long as they wanted it to. As simple as that. It would last as long as they allowed it to last. Uh, and then there'll be the counter argument of, oh, but what about these? No, no, no. It would last as long as they allowed it to last, as in until until they hit you and then it would be over. Um, but final thing, final thing we'll get on to and it's almost inevitable, really, that we need to we need to address this when talking about um, training, um, and that's the the issue of, of of PEDs. And we could talk about this all night. We're not going to. But one thing I've always been curious about, and I'm not in any way trying to elicit names from either of you two, but when you do this for a living, when you are a professional and you know what the human body is capable of doing and what it is not capable of doing. Can you tell almost immediately, may never have happened, but if when you see someone in a gym or in a fight and you see what they're doing and you think there's only one way they're able to do that and that's because they're cheating. Do you know, would you say? Yeah. Um, there's definitely, yeah. well, I, I'm not going to say names, but there's definitely a couple of fighters and I've just thought, fuck off. I have. It's 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 rife in our sport, and it's um, I, I remember once I took a supplement, and um, <clears throat> I took a supplement. Uh, I looked on the on the box of the supplement. There was no banned substance on the UK anti-doping. Um, it was it was nothing on there. I, it was advertised in boxing magazines, uh, MMA magazines. Oh, I'll try this supplement. Took it for a couple of days, didn't like it. Had a phone call. Uh, you failed the test. I said, I am failed the test. He said, you yeah, failed the test. I said, I am. They said, I'm taking this, take it. He said, oh, that's it. I said, well, that can't be it because there's nothing on the band list on there. What had happened was, lucky enough, it was, it was a strong substance. Uh, but what had happened, there's, there was a substance called methylhexamine. Uh, I think it was in that jack and some other, some other supplements. It wasn't on the actual box. It was hidden under... It was contained in another substance called geranium tree oil, which at the time wasn't on the banned list. Um, so when when that came out, 
that was the worst feeling. I've always been so looked after my body, so strong, so fit, trained so hard. But people that think that I didn't actually use something uh, really, really affected me. And I remember, I remember Robert Smith uh, from the Boxing Board of Control turned up uh, at the thing. He said, look, I don't believe anyone. He said, Enzo, I believe. Uh, and I, I took everything with me. Um, and I had a backdated six-month ban. My, my solicitor, he said, look, they've got nothing on you and all that. He said, we can, we can fight this and we can appeal. I saw a great deal we'll appeal. He said, yeah, the appeal would take two years. I said, oh, fuck. So I thought to myself, I'll wait and see what the reaction is. And if it's bad, I was going to appeal. But to cut a long story short, for me to feel like I did, uh, from taking a supplement, which wasn't on the band list, which what they had no ingredient on the band list. But then I, I see the likes of Miller uh, taking all that. You know, I just don't see how you could do it. Whether it's to win or not, I just do not see how you could put someone's life at risk, which is what they are doing. You know, so, some of the stuff he got, he got caught in the system is, is, is no, no masking agent involved. It's got to be purely injected into your system. And for, for someone like him to be at that weight and have all that in his system and go into a fight... I just think I mean, he was banned for life. It's just a number. It's just it's just it's it's speechless, isn't it? The to, to to fail all the things he failed and not, to not be banned for life in a combat sport where people are getting disgusting. Disgusting. But him, he should be locked up. Never mind banned for life. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's, it's, it, you, he's literally putting someone's life at rest. The the amount of the, the amount of strength, the cardio extra he would have on someone through all that in his system the EPO for example that, that can only get injected into your system it's, it's just unbelievable it, it just baffles me it just baffles me how someone could put all that stuff in his system and just go into a fight knowing for well they cheated but but what I, what I was kind of, of getting at really was that given how well a a long enduring and successful professional which you both were given how well you know what is and is not possible through legitimate clean hard training within boxing or just athletics generally is it the case that people who are cheating everybody knows because they look at them and they look at their performance and they think I know through my 15 years of doing whatever it is that, that they've been doing, whether it's track or it's boxing or it's cycling or anything else, I know that what you're doing, there's only one way you can do that. And yeah. I, I, I oh, see yeah. a, a lot of fighters where you, it, it's too much of a difference, you know, in between fights or if you've seen them when they were younger, to see them four or five years later, the, the, different, the different aspect, the speed's increased, the muscle mass increased, the yeah. power's increased. I know yeah. you, you, you were spotted a mile away. You don't get those sort of advancements in boxing in, in a couple of year period. And I've seen a few, and I'm sure Matthew's seen a few. And, and when you see guys who are, you know, 40 years old and, and, they're, and they're, you know, they're going up weights and, and they've got more energy than ever, who the fuck's got more energy at 40? Do you know what I mean? That's just like, you know, oh, we have yeah, we have the of a species that much. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, let's be honest. But it's like I said something the other day. I'm probably, I'm probably, I'm 40 
not not taking nothing by the way. I If you were still fighting for world titles, banging out twelve rounds like the, the clap. Yeah, you know? yeah. And you know, I, I I used to say to people I'm probably in the best shape I've ever been in because of diet and thing. Could I fight the same? That's a totally different that's a totally different thing. You know, when I, when I see like you said, these forty year olds smashing personal bests, uh punch out putt and things they never had before. Um, you know, I'd like to think I'm sort of on the sort of same sort of level I've always been, but I've always stayed in the gym. I've never i never missed some gym. But, you know, but, I, but I see these people have jumped like four or five minutes off their best 10k time. You know, the, the, the velocity of punch power and, you know, just fucking, it's just party, man. Is it, I mean, is it, is it a bit demoralising? Like when, when, you know, when you were, younger and you know that that probably you, you can't say it precisely because people get their 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 man strength as we describe it in boxing at, at different ages it's hard to define exactly when your physical peak might come but you probably know when it is to within a year or two or three years say when, when you were at that point and you know that you're clean and you look around and you know that there are other people there you're competing with who aren't how do you I just don't. I don't think I could take it if 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 I was an athlete having to try and fight that battle. I don't think I could. I don't didn't, think I could. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm honest, you, you look you look at the top athletes today now, and I'm not just talking boxing. Uh, you talk about the money behind them. Uh, everyone's got to sign this, and you know, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not labelling it to everyone, but there's a lot of people that you wouldn't think were on it, and they've all got their little sign this. They know how to. How to structure, how to structure the camp. They know how to. Uh, you, look, you just look at Lance Armstrong. The amount of times he was tested. It's just a point of someone knowing which way to do it, and there's a lot of money involved in sport. And you know the the top boys earn. The top boys got money. The top boys can cover a lot of things. Not everyone, but I'm sure there's a lot out there. I think one thing I've I've always wondered, and you won't be able to answer this either of you because because this isn't this isn't you, but I guess you probably have to be a particular type of person to do it and still be able to mentally function effectively. As in, you must really not care. So do you know what the problem is and what the danger is? I think this is what happened in the cycling. I think this is what's going to happen in boxing. If, if, if not already, it's happened. There's lots of people that don't necessarily want to cheat, but they don't want to be cheated. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So they're, they're seeing other people do it and they're thinking, mm. I, don't, I just want a level playing field. And if I don't do it, like, I don't know. What, I, I, don't, I, I didn't watch the documentary, but you know, hear people conversations with friends and you know, earshot type thing. But wasn't it something like the top, it wasn't just Lance Armstrong? It would have been the next fifteen was, behind him. Yeah, it's it pretty much. I, mean, I remember arguing with a boy the other week, and he was saying, "Oh, it was a, it was a le- Lance was cheating, but it was a level playing field. They were all on it." And I said, "What about what about that boy who come last? The one who's got more money, no backing. The one who couldn't do it. You know, where would he be?" And and like you said, for them to compete with Lance, they had to do it, and you know, it's come out that. It's, it's been loads, loads come out from different teams, and if you have the money, uh, if you have the money, you've got the backing, and you're making money, people will cheat. This is sort of, 
Didn't, didn't Ben Johnson say recently something like, and this was quite recently, that when he won the 100 metres in 19, was it 88? That yeah, he yeah. was winning by that much that he thought to himself, shit, I better slow down. They're going to yeah, blow it. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's how powerful just, they are. Yeah, and it was, it was a matter of the difference in times. And, you know, look at Usain Bolt. He's just been consistent. He's just been consistent. Ben Johnson was just a, a massive... A massive leap in in times, and it's 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 just it's just, the, the world's mad. Sporting world is mad and crazy, and there's a there's a lot of people who will do anything they can to achieve achieve their dream. They're not not achieving their dream naturally, but they're achieving their dream, and they don't really care how they get it. No, sadly, I think that's true, and and they will happily play Russian roulette with their future health to do it too. And and there's there's you know because it comes at a cost. You know we've seen some some high profile, uh, very premature deaths um, in in recent years. And well, it's it's the the sad reality is is that it's been in sport for a long time. Um, as Enzo said, where there is money, where there is glory, even. Because back in the day, there wouldn't have been all that much money in some sports. People will, people do will do whatever they whatever they can to gain an edge and, and to try and, and to try and get the win. Um, in boxing and in combat sports, it is more serious because people can people can get killed. And well, we'll leave it there, chaps. We'll leave it there. Bit of a downer to leave it on that, but um, I, I thought we had to. I thought we had to address it really because you know you two have both been doing this a. Uh, a long, long time, and you'll have you'll have seen things, and it's it's part of it's part of life. As I said, unfortunately, when you're a professional athlete, um, it's going to impinge on what you're doing, or at least enter your thoughts at some stage. But that's been really, really interesting to to catch up on all of that because people have been asking us for an episode like this for a while. Uh, making way, it's just you know, it's just what well, it's just a complete madness, isn't it? A complete madness. But uh, one of the Many things that is very specific to boxing. So thanks very much. Thanks very much for your time. Um, we were always, we were just waiting to get, you know, to, to sit down and, and do this in person with you because we worked together um, pre-lockdown quite a lot and then lockdown came along and I just thought, well, Christ, we could be waiting forever. So um, let's uh, let's get the big man on. We're about to do the show in uh, Cardiff, weren't we? We sell yeah. pre-lockdown and we were going to do that. Then. Right, yeah. yeah, that's it. That's it. Anyway, hopefully it won't be too long before we do see you in person. Um Everybody else, thanks for listening as always. We will be back later in the week um, with a well, at least one more, maybe two, ahead of Usyk Chisora on Saturday night. So thanks for listening as always. If you could give us a, uh, a rate and a review, it does, it does help us. And we'll see you again soon. And old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right babe. Not that man. Podcast Network.